Well, if you are uh, remaining in the room, I'd encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 13, Acts chapter 2. I was thinking the other day that um, almost uh, 17 years ago, uh, next month, we brought our, our very first child home from the hospital. It's hard to believe that it's been uh, 17 years. It's gone by in a blink, as they say. Um, but I can remember back in those first moments, we'd, we, I shouldn't say we, my nine-month pregnant wife, uh, installed the car seat in the car, and we put him in the car seat, and uh, I can remember walking out of the hospital very carefully and gingerly. Uh, we drove home. I've probably never driven so slow in my entire life, having that precious cargo. And I can remember getting home uh, feeling very, very excited uh, to have our first child, but feeling totally ill-equipped and inadequate to raise a child. Uh, It's one thing to read all the books, and for the first child, we did read all the books, uh, but it's another thing to bring that baby home for the very first time. Well, as we saw last week, Jesus ascended back into heaven, and he gave his followers a mission, and that mission was to change the world for the gospel. They were to spread the message of Jesus Christ to the very ends of the earth, but they certainly had to feel very ill-equipped and inadequate to accomplish the task that had been given them. They were not public speakers. They weren't politicians. They were not influencers. You couldn't find their names on any of the the Forbes lists that were out there. In fact, they were all fishermen, uh, fishermen tasked with changing the world for Jesus. They had to feel inadequate. Uh, They had to feel ill-equipped. They had to feel intimidated, maybe even frightened. Look at what they had just done to Jesus. They're probably going to do that very same thing to us. Ill-equipped, inadequate, probably very frightened, probably very intimidated. And then, as we're going to read just now, something very, very significant happened to them. I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. This is God's word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who were speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own tongue? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Serene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for this gift of worship, Lord, that we've 
uh, already been engaged with for the past half hour, the beauty of the songs that have been sung, the readings, Lord, and how much they remind our hearts of what you've done for us. Father, we pray that as we come to your word, that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, that, that you would take the power of your word and shape us more and more into your image, into who you desire us to be. Help us to see this beautiful book of Acts and how it's, it's, it's the, the final chapter hasn't been written. We get to play a part in it. So help us to understand your word, but help us to also understand more the gospel and what it means to be a part of the mission of the gospel. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I can think of many times in my life where I've come face to face with my own inadequacy. I talked about that, uh, having our first child. But with almost every new job I've taken or new venture, I've had feelings of inadequacy or insecurity with whatever new thing has been put on my plate, whether it's coaching, whether it's teaching, whether it's pastoring. And whenever you start something new, you start to wonder, do I really have the stuff that it takes uh, to pull this off? Uh, pastoring makes me feel like this all the time. Parenting makes me feel like this daily. Uh, some people call this imposter syndrome. Maybe you've heard that before. You start a new venture. You, you sort of feel like an imposter for a little while. And so you just got to fake it till you make it. And then finally, you'll start to feel a little bit adequate. Well, I think life throws us into situations like that all the time. Situations that feel too big for us. Situations that that we feel uh, inadequate in order to handle. But what's been so beautiful in my life, and I know in many of your lives, is we can give testimony to the fact that God shows up often in our most inadequate of moments. Well, the book of Acts records for us the first steps of Jesus' followers in the first century and really beyond. We saw that in Christ's life and ministry, he chose to surround himself with really remarkably ordinary sorts of people. They were people that didn't have a a royal or educational pedigree. They didn't have a bunch of master's degrees. They didn't go to any Ivies. Uh, They were often people that were quite the opposite. They had checkered pasts. Um, Some were despised even by the culture that they lived in. Tax collectors, people of known sinful reputation, and yet God chose these people to be the first foundation of this movement in the first century world. And no doubt they had to be filled with all sorts of feelings of inadequacy. How could Jesus expect us to do all of this? Who are we? We're we're not capable of doing what Jesus wants us to do. But one of the things that Jesus also said to them was was just wait, just wait, because help is coming. And just days later, after Jesus ascended into heaven, they're doing that very thing. They are waiting together in a room, and all of a sudden, a rushing wind comes upon them, and we learn that they are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, life by nature can be very mysterious. Um, We often wonder why things happen in certain ways and why they happen in certain timing. But we also know that a God by nature is mysterious. We know certain things about him, but we don't know everything about him. And so there's a mysterious nature to even the God whom we worship. One of the things that we believe is that God is three persons in one substance, 
wrapped in this thing that we call a trinity. And that's even in itself something that is utterly mysterious in its essence. And as those, we think about those three persons, the Holy Spirit might be the most mysterious person in that trinity. He's the one we probably know the least about, but is no doubt equally important to the other members of the trinity. Jesus himself talked uh, at length about the Holy Spirit in John uh, chapter 14, 15, and 16. We've seen the Spirit work through the Old Testament, sort of show up in these really important moments, but we don't get a very extended discourse about the Holy Spirit till we get to Jesus' teaching uh, in the Gospel of John. But we can't mistake that for thinking that for some reason the Holy Spirit is any lesser, because the Holy Spirit isn't. The Holy Spirit, in fact, is so important that Jesus himself, in that section of John, said that it is actually advantageous that he go so that the Holy Spirit can come. He made his promise to his disciples that he would never leave them alone, and the Holy Spirit plays a big part in that. So what I want us to see about this Holy Spirit from our text this morning is a couple of things that the Holy Spirit works through the gospel to bring us life. The Holy Spirit is, is our counselor. He is our advocate. He is our helper. But I really want us to see, and this is what I think Luke is trying to communicate here, I want us to see that the Spirit works both personally, individually, in each one of our lives, and in the context of community. He operates corporately in this institution that we call the church. So let's begin by looking at how the Spirit works in our lives personally. Well, the scriptures tell us that after these disciples received this mysterious Holy Spirit, they left the room in which they are in and they had this miraculous ability to speak the message of the gospel in different languages. This event happened on uh, a Jewish festival called the Feast of Weeks. It was, a, it was a harvest festival for the Jews, and it would bring the Jews from all over the world, and you got to read the list in there, all over the world to Jerusalem. And this particular festival would think back to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, Um, That was another moment where uh, there was wind and fire and power from heaven. And so the Jews would gather together in Jerusalem. They'd remember this giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And because of the Roman system and the Roman roads, it made it easy for uh, Jews from all over the world to gather into Jerusalem for this festival. So there's this massive crowd in the city and they hear the sound of rushing wind And they're amazed that these Galileans that don't have master degrees, that don't have all sorts of educational pedigree, but these Galileans are speaking the gospel in their native languages. They're amazed by the message that they are hearing and the means by which they are hearing it. There's always some people that mock, right? And of course, there's some that are mocking them, saying that they had drank new wine, meaning uh, wine that was full of alcohol. They must be drunk to be speaking in this way. But others were moved. And if we kept reading in this passage, we read that Peter jumps out into the street, he preaches the message of the gospel, and 3,000 people are converted to Jesus in that moment 
on that day. And everyone who witnessed this event were filled with awe. I think this story is powerful for a lot of reasons. It picks up on a bunch of Old Testament uh, images. And in particular, it should make us think about a passage in Genesis chapter 11. And I think we just finished a, a sermon series on the book of Genesis. But if you remember back to Genesis chapter 11, we read the story of the Tower of Babel. And in that story, uh, mankind wanted to be like God, which is always the essence of sin, wanting to, to take the place of God. Um, and so mankind wanted to be like God, and so they build a tower that reaches up into the heavens, and it makes God angry. Uh, God isn't angry at the architecture or the engineering that it took to build this tower. He's uh, upset with humanity's hubris. And so he chooses to confuse their language and to disperse the people all throughout the world. But here at Pentecost, what we see is the reverse. All this is being reversed. We see God, through his great work of redemption, re rolling back the curses that you and I deserve because of sin. So what does this mean for us? What does this passage mean for us? Well, personally, God is telling us here that in the gospel, he is gradually repairing everything that has gone wrong in this world. Think about that for a second. God is gradually repairing everything that has gone wrong in this world. The work of Christ continues through the work of the Holy Spirit. That work of redemption that was accomplished by Jesus is continued through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now that sounds great, but how does that work out personally for you and I? Well, the great consequences of sin, our rebellion, our personal rebellion, it leaves each and every one of us spiritually dead. That's what the gospel tells us. Our sin leaves us dead. It leaves us condemned. It leaves us awaiting the judgment of God. And because of that, we are utterly inadequate. We are helpless and utterly unable to do anything about it, anything to save us in our deadness. Whenever I think about this, I think about when Beck and I were first married and we inherited a lawnmower um, from, from some parent. I don't remember who it was. And when it came time for us to cut our lawn for the very first time, I went to start the mower for the first time and, and it wouldn't start. So I, I filled the mower with gasoline and, and I even managed to change the oil. I'm not a very mechanical person, so it's remarkable that I figured that out. But I managed to change the oil. I cleaned it all up. And every time I pulled on that string, nothing would happen. I did it over and over again. Nothing would happen until I finally discover that the problem was the spark plug. And without having that spark plug, the machine would never come to life. Now, I often think about that when I think about God's spirit. That's what happens when the spirit comes. Once we were dead in our sins, but God's spirit brings the spark. It brings us life. He breathes life into our deadness. He works through the message of the gospel to bring life where there was no life before. Just like that passage in Ezekiel, the valley of dry bones, the spirit comes into our lives personally and he breathes life into our soul. But here's what's good news. The spirit just doesn't come, bring us life and then leaves. Instead, the gospel tells us he becomes our helper, our counselor, 
our advocate. He's continually applying the message of the gospel to our lives day in and day out. He's the one who makes good on God's promise to never leave us nor forsake us. And so the gospel through the power of the spirit is not just the thing that initially brings life, but it's the vehicle that gradually rolls back the effects of sin in our lives, conforms us more and more into who God desires us to be. And we'll continue that work until we reach eternity with him. So that spirit is constantly at work, convicting us, sanctifying us, applying the gospel to our lives personally. And so we see this this spirit working personally, but what we also see in our passage is that the Holy Spirit works corporately. It works in the context of the community in this thing that we call the church. Years ago, um, Forbes magazine uh, came out with an article, and it was called The The Nine Toughest Leadership Roles That Exist in Our our Culture. And so that title immediately caught my attention, and so I clicked on it. I started reading through it. And what I discovered to my absolute joy is that pastor was on the list. In fact, pastor was number five on the list of nine toughest leadership roles. And believe it or not, it beat out mayor, it beat out U.S. congressperson, corporate CEO, and newspaper editor. So you can imagine how I felt when I read that. Uh, One minister quoted, this wasn't a very positive quote, but he said, being a pastor is like death by a thousand paper cuts, Uh, which I thought was interesting. Uh, But I read that and I I immediately called my wife, right, feeling incredibly self-righteous and uh, validated. You know, at this point, she is staying at home with the kids and, and working hard doing that. And so I call her feeling very validated and self-righteous and read her. She's like, oh, that's very, very interesting. And she said, well, what, what's number one on the list? And I was like, you know, I didn't, I didn't scroll that far. Uh, so I kept scrolling on number one on the list. And as I scrolled up, I saw that the number one role was a stay-at-home parent. And so all of a sudden, she was the one feeling very validated in that moment. You see, one of the things being a pastor or a parent does to you regularly is it helps you to see how completely inadequate uh, you are to do what God has called you to do. And so what is true for us individually, I believe, is also true for us corporately as the church. Think about this for a minute. What do we do every Sunday? We gather together for this thing called worship. We try to get other people to come and to gather with us in a society where church is becoming less and less relevant. Some people view the church as just a community or some club or some organization. It's an interest group. Uh, Some might consider it a way to sort of recharge their batteries or connect with the spiritual side of their life. Others look on it with all sorts of derision and scorn. How on earth could you give time to go to something like this? Others look at it as, well, that may be a good idea, but I'm, I'm too busy. I got other things going on. But ultimately, we as the church are called to be a community centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ, sent out into the world on God's mission. But the beauty is we're not on that mission alone. We've been given God's spirit who works through the gospel to change the world. And so just as we personally are dead apart from the work of the gospel and God's spirit, So is the church. 
The church is just a bunch of people gathering, having whatever fun they have. If the gospel is not here and the spirit is not here, then the power is not here. Why? Because we're inadequate to do the thing that God called us to do, just like those first disciples. But God sends the spirit in order to do great things. The church becomes this instrument in which God brings life to a world that is decaying. And so God's spirit, he works personally in each one of our lives, but he also works corporately in the context of this community, this thing that we call the church. He brings life to both. He is the helper, he is the counselor, and he is our faithful advocate. I've told you the story before about a a woman who approached me one day in all sorts of tears and she wanted to talk and she outlined her life and everything that had gone wrong and all the ways that she'd been suffering in her life. But I think the thing that struck me most about that conversation is I discovered that uh, her greatest pain was that she had suffered all of these things alone. You see, friends, I think we can bear all sorts of hard things in our life, all sorts of challenges as long as we know that we have someone alongside of us, with us every single step of the way. I've told you this story before, but I was reminded um, just this week of uh, one year when I was coaching at the high school level and um, I had a student come to me, this was probably 15 years ago at this point, come to me on a Monday and say, um, you know, Coach Donahue, I just want to tell you that, that my mother passed away this weekend. And I could hardly believe what I, was, what I was hearing when he told me this. It was very sudden. He wasn't, nobody was, was expecting this. And he said, can I mispractice tomorrow just to get my head together? And I said, well, absolutely. He's like, but I know we've got a race on Wednesday, and I still want a race on Wednesday. So I said, all right, you're, you're welcome to do that. Well, this, this particular season, he was a junior, and we had a, a, a senior who was a little bit of a better runner than him. But what they would do is every meet, they would sort of duke it out amongst one another. They'd get first and second uh, every single meet. And uh, so as this meet comes on Wednesday, um, I'm expecting the same thing to happen. But of course, the team had heard that this young man's mother had died. And so we have this junior and senior, and they are running together the whole time. But you can tell the junior's just not in it. He just lost his mom. He's full of all sorts of emotion. So what happens is the senior, recognizing this, decides, I'm going to run with him every step of the race. Every step of the race, he's running beside him. He's cheering him on. He's encouraging him. And then they come up to the finish line together, and he slows and gradually puts his back to the junior and lets him win the race that day. Now, what's so, it, was, it was one of the single most beautiful moments I've ever seen in my coaching career to see this play out over three miles on a cross-country course. But what was so significant is not the fact that he let him win at the very end of the race. I thought what was most significant is that he had a friend to run alongside him all along to encourage him, to cheer him on, and to be by his side. Friends, we live in a difficult world where life throws us all sorts of impossible tasks. We've been given a mission that seems impossible, but we've also been given an advocate, a counselor, a helper. He breathes life into us through the gospel and he whispers that gospel into our hearts as we run through this challenging life together. If you're here this morning and you feel like there's just 
something missing in your life. You've not felt that power of God in your life. You've been overcome with your inadequacies, knowing that there's never any way you could be made right before God. Know that God's spirit stands ready to breathe life into you. And he stays with you, never leaving you, never forsaking you, staying with you every step of the way. John chapter 14, Jesus said, I will never leave you as orphans. I will come to you. We are never alone. We are his and he is with us. Let's pray.